Huxley basically argued if people would lose their freedom because they were so entertained by screens, by entertainment, uh, by pop culture, that they would voluntarily give up a lot of their personal information and a lot of their agency. There's no doubt that Orwell got everything right, I think, in my opinion, except one thing, perhaps. Government, I don't think that's going to be Big Brother. You know, I think it's going to actually be a combination of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's about unlimited access and power. These companies know you better than you know yourself, and they know everything you do and say in private, and they also understand how to manipulate that knowledge. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be part two in the interview that I did with Pete Quinones. And just to give you some context and bring you back into it in case you're not listening to these back to back, we had been talking about the influence of corporations. And in particular, Pete had just made the point that when he thinks of corporate control and corporate influence, he automatically thinks about the corporate press and how they are influencing and at times even controlling and manipulating what we think and how society might view certain events or interpret certain things. So I'll go ahead and just pick back up. I will start off with my response to what he had said, and he will get back into it, and I'll play the rest of the interview out through its entirety. So please enjoy. So if they're controlling what adults believe, would you say that the technology of the internet and this access that we have to information and news, would you say that that might have made people more educated? Because I would argue theoretically it should. Or has it just been another way for institutions to gain more control and control the narrative? Well, I think at this point, um, with how wrapped up the establishment has people's minds in the left-right paradigm. Um, yeah, I, I don't see how, I don't see the masses starting like I did, you know, where like getting a revelation and then staying up till three or four o'clock in the morning, searching the internet and reading. Yeah. Unless they're, unless they're told to by the press, unless the press is, is, is making them aware of something, you know, that, that they don't know. So, the internet is, I mean, all that information's out there. I mean, if you want to learn anything about what what's going on in the world, there's somebody writing about it. Now, it could just be a lunatic writing from their basement. doesn't mean they're not all wrong. I mean, you know, we've already talked about discernment and how little people have nowadays when they're reading stuff because everybody's reading into their own... Co- as soon as something attacks their cognitive dissonance, they just... You know, as soon as something attacks their belief system, the cognitive dissonance kicks in and they're like, no, no, that can't possibly be right. Yeah. But, you know, people like you and me, people listening to this, we use the Internet to debunk all of this stuff, to to look at it and go, that's not right. There's no way. No, there's no. No, this couldn't happen. Wait a minute. It's like or like um, I'll give you one um somebody had found was the Yemeni school bus that the Saudis blew up 
uh, yeah. killed like 50 kids last year. As some independent journalist took a picture of a bomb shard and it was Boeing. <laughs> so everyone knew where it came from. I was I, I think it was Boeing. I don't want to I don't want to throw Boeing under the bus even though they deserve to be thrown under it and run over again. But um but it was it was definitely an American weapons company. You know, and you know, it's like Scott Horton says that he's gotten five in, he five independent people from five independent sources that they're calling it a proxy war of like Saudi Arabia fighting Yemen, but um, five independent people have told him that there are Americans sitting in the jump seat telling them, you know, basically guiding them to the points where they're bombing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and you wouldn't, that, that's stuff you wouldn't know unless there was independent journalism out there because corporate press isn't going to tell you about that. You know, some people just use the internet to upload pictures of their cat, pictures of their kids, whatever. And some people are using the internet to get out of the matrix, the matrix way of thinking. And you know, there's, there are always people out there who can help you do that. You know, you look at something like agorism, which is basically just operating outside of the system altogether. You know, some people call it the black market, the gray market. Um, there, I know websites where you can go and you can learn how to, I mean, Thaddeus Russell is starting his renegade university is going to have courses live courses where you can go and learn agorism yeah things you know like making making extract you know weed extract things like that i mean it's you just have to want it but unfortunately you have this amazing tool right at you know at your fingertips but unless the corporate press tells you something is important you're not going to start looking for it or unless you have somebody around you who's influential, you know, or you, you stumble upon a podcast or something like that, then you start asking questions and then you can start running with it. But, you know, the overwhelming majority of people in this society are just whatever the press tells me, that's what I believe. And that's how I'm going to run with it. Well, you mentioned the term a remnant and that there is always a remnant. And if we look back to the Reformation, we saw this remnant of reformers that believed very heartily in what they were doing and what they were learning and what they wanted to get out there to the masses. And that's all it took. And so I agree with you. There's definitely people like you and I and plenty others out there that really do want to learn and are using this technology to learn more and to call out things like cronyism and government corruption and things like this. And my hope, at least, would be that that's all it takes, that it just takes this remnant of us to get something going. Um, there is something I wanted to bring up. You started talking about the involvement of corporations and how they're intertwined with government. And so it gets me thinking of the internet and propaganda and that kind of thing. Is there really much of a difference between propaganda, which we usually think of as coming from the state, and advertising, which is usually coming from corporations? We do see that through advertising, we have this gigantic consumerist culture that has come up where people are being trained to be consumers and it's the focus is on materialism and that's what really matters and what do you have and how nice is it how new is it and a lot of that is being influenced through advertising so is advertising another form of propaganda just on the corporate side rather than the government side or are there some major differences there 
I would suggest everyone pick up a book called Propaganda by Edward Bernays and read it. It's 140 pages, 160 pages. I've read it twice. It just reads like he's talking about politics, but everything he talks about in there, he directly relates to um, advertising. Yeah, he basically says propaganda is advertising. And so I I actually brought the book out because I wanted to read a passage from it. Um, he says, as a matter of fact, the practice of propaganda since the war, he's talking about World War One, has assumed very different forms from those prevalent 20 years ago. The new technique may fairly be called the new propaganda. It takes account not merely of the individual, nor even of the mass mind alone, but also and especially of the anatomy of society with its interlocking group formations and loyalties. It sees the individual not only as a cell in the social organism, but as a cell organized into the social unit. Touch a nerve at a sensitive spot and you get an automatic response from certain specific members of the organism. And then he talks about, um, he says, business offers graphic, and now he starts talking about business. Business offers graphic examples of the effect that may be produced upon the public by interested groups such as textile manufacturers losing their markets. This problem arose not long ago when the velvet manufacturers were facing ruin because their product had long been out of fashion. Nobody wanted to wear velvet. So analysis showed that it was impossible to revive a velvet fashion within America. It's an anatomical hunt for the vital spot. Paris, obviously, but yes and no. Paris is the home of fashion. Lyons is the home of silk. The attack had to be made at the source. It was determined to substitute purpose for chance and to utilize the regular sources for fashion distribution and to influence the public from these sources. A velvet fashion service, openly supported by the manufacturers, was organized. Its first function was to establish contact with the Lions manufacturers and the Paris couturiers to discover what they were doing to encourage them to act on behalf of velvet. So what he's talking about here is that something has fallen out of fashion. These people have all of these um, these resources, and they want to find something to do. Well, what do they do? They get together, and they have, consp- they have a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to get people interested in Velvet again. And this is the same thing that government does. I mean, really get this book, people. Uh, Propaganda by Bernays. I think it was a hardcover version. It was like 15 bucks on Amazon or something like that. So you look at that. um, Like my problem with propaganda is it's really whether it's selling a product or it's, you know, trying to influence politics, it collectivizes people. Uh, political propaganda directs people to the idea that they are part of a group that is correct and on the right side of history. The same thing with selling a product. You know, the advertiser seeks to make you believe if you don't have this product, you're not part of the cool crowd. By possessing it, you have something over the person who do, you know who doesn't. Um, you know, once again, it's just putting people into groups. I know my free market friends may think that sounds like commie propaganda, but that's exactly what advertising is. It's just to get you to um, to get you to want something, to desire something. Yeah, yeah. Some of that that you're talking about sounds fairly familiar to another aspect around the time of the Reformation and just prior. You had the rise of 
the merchant bankers, people like the Medicis is the one that probably everyone has heard of. But what they did is they used networks, they built networks, um, they had information and communication, and they had political pull, and they used all of these things to build dynasties and to gain control. Oftentimes, it didn't matter what resource they were trading in, whether it was gold or fabric or anything else, they had the people in place to know what markets were priced high, what markets were priced low. They had a system in place for getting things from point A to point B quickly. Communication passed much quickly, much more quickly for them than their competitors. And they leveraged these things to build their dynasties, to build their control. And so we see a very similar thing to this today with big tech. And they have all this access to data, to information. They've built these networks. And it's very similar there. And you're talking a lot about propaganda and how that's being used. And I would think that the access to big data that big tech has today is something that really gives them the ability to target their advertising and their propaganda much more effectively and much more fully. So is that something that that you see? Do you see the influence of the rise of big data and big tech as something that has evolved maybe uh, the use of propaganda or something that has at least made it much more effective and much more dangerous, I would argue, to us in society? Well, I've already mentioned um, Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Google. Yeah, and these are the big boys. They um, they can buy favors. They can even sculpt policy, uh, much like the Medicis did. You know, the Medicis installed four popes. They had two queens of France that they controlled. I believe up to like eight former White House staffers from the previous three administrations now work in the front office in Facebook. Ooh. I read that. I read that recently. Um, I already talked about how the Intercept uncovered um, Facebook taking down accounts on at the behest of the United States and the um, Israeli governments. Um, they're basically these. These organizations are kingmakers uh, at this point. Um, they all have algorithms to control the flow of information for you know for some over others. Um, Facebook has the Atlantic Council as one of their fact checkers. Oh. And the Atlantic Council is basically a neocon think tank, you know, a pro-war neocon think tank. In in recent years, Twitter has changed the rules on who can have a verified account, which is a check mark, which is supposed to denote, you know, that's who the, this person, whoever this account says it is, that's in fact them. Um, you know, so they basically choose someone like myself is denied. I, I can't even apply for it. When I go to that website uh, for verification, it, it won't even allow me to fill out a form. Yet, just days after the Parkland shooting, the most vocal of the um, students, they all had check marks next to their Twitter. Oh, next to their Twitter profile. Yeah, they were, they were verified. They were the ch they were the chosen ones. Um, Google decides what content is true and false for YouTube. You know, they're recently they're trying to do a big crackdown. Uh, a, a bunch of cryptocurrency accounts, accounts that just talk about cryptocurrency were taken down recently. And they said, oh, we made a mistake. But those account, a lot of those accounts still aren't back up. I um, saw that. Yeah. Their search engine won't pull up like the search warrant for the Waco massacre. If you want to like I'm writing a book on, on Waco and I wanted to I need the search warrant. 
And I went into Google. I put Waco search warrant. I even put the date uh, of the of the invasion, and it wouldn't come up. I went to DuckDuckGo. First thing that came up. Huh. So Google's controlling. They don't want people looking at that. But Facebook is creating its own currency. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's something important when it comes to corporations and people talking about, well, the corporations are going to take over and everything. Um, you know, one of the things that they would have to do is if they're going to take over, that means government would become so weak. Who would want a weak government's currency? So now you already see one huge, huge, huge corporation coming up with its own currency. That's rather interesting. It's rather interesting to see what the kingmakers are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that brings us to the next point I wanted to bring up, and that's a comparison between the historic nobility. They were people that had a lot of control over just a small subset of a region's population. There's this subset of the population they had a lot of direct control over, and they were incentivized to keep them content so that there were no rebellions. And since they were small, they didn't have standing armies oftentimes. And so they wanted to make sure that their citizens were content. And that's very similar to corporations today. They have a lot of control over small subsets of the population, people that access their services and products, but they need those people to be content so that they don't go elsewhere to their competition. And so we see through the Reformation that the historic nobility, they consolidated with other nobles, they married into other families, they took over other groups and other regions, they centralized and expanded their power. And through this, we see the rise of the nation state, the creation of the nation state. And this is very similar to what we're seeing today. We're talking about corporations, and we see more mergers now of these giant corporations than at least I can remember personally. And we see these corporations taking more power, just like the nobility took a lot of power away from the church and started to take the place of the church in many different aspects. We see that with corporations taking the place of the state. You mentioned the Libra currency, and that's a perfect example there. So with this, what are some other ways that corporations now are superseding the modern state, similarly to what we saw through the Reformation, where the nobles gained their power and solidified and centralized? Well, the first thing they have to do is they actually have to ally themselves with the state and um, do their bidding. I think that they have to become, you know, be the state's arm in a certain way. Um, one way they can they do this is by becoming the purse of the politicians. Is they're funding them. They're the the corporation basically has to get to the point where if it's going to become more powerful than the state, it's going to have to be able to first ally itself with the state, the whole kind of thing. You know, if keep your enemy, keep your enemies, um, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Um, if the corporations wish to, to supersede the modern state, um, I think all they would have to do is stop funding and supporting it. I don't mean by taxes either. Um, I'm not of the opinion that taxes any longer fund the state. Um, 
they can manipulate the currency. The Federal Reserve does that, you know, quote unquote, prints money. Uh, that's to, to explain that that's really not what they do. I don't want to really get into how the Federal Reserve does that because you can read that anywhere on the Internet. I've done full episodes on that. So my listeners yeah. should be well aware. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm talking about stopping. They would have to stop donations to politicians. Um, they would have to get to the point where most of these politicians now, when they retire or when they get voted out, um, they're rewarded for what they did inside. Like um, I always talk about former DNC chief Terry McAuliffe, how when he was um, when when he was in the House, he was one of the biggest proponents of um, ethanol fuel. And you know, which which would be a boon to corn, uh, corn growers and producers, and how when he was voted out, and I think it was in two thousand four, within like twenty four months, he was appointed to the board of eight different ethanol companies. Oh, so think about that. If they stop, if corporations stop funding them when they're in office. Stop giving them money. Um, stop giving them favors like that when they retire. Uh, if they just withdraw their support, you know the power, um, the power of the individual politician, then they could weaken the state to the point that they may, they could have the power to replace it. My problem with that is it's kind of hard to forecast exactly whether they'd want to do that because a state. It's like I mentioned with currency, um, corporations would have to have something ready to go as far as to replace a currency because a weakened state, I mean, nobody wants the Argentinian, I can't remember what, what Argentina uses, but nobody wants their, their currency. Um, if they were able to, you know, if a corporation was able to bypass like Mises, Ludwig von Mises regression theorem, um, which the popularity of fiat currency may make less difficult nowadays. Um, they could have a shot, a shot of achieving that goal. I just don't know that corporations would want to. I mean, they're working too close with governments to, you know, actually see, you know, the nature of government. And I think even the most crony corporation knows how in inefficient the state is in its very nature. And you know, you would hope that good business people would seek to avoid that. But they do see how efficient government is at building the wealth of corporations. If you look at Amazon, most of their profits don't come from their retail services. They come from their web services. And some of their biggest contracts are people like the Department of Defense. And they had the CIA and NSA. I think they lost one of those contracts recently. But they get all of this money from government contracts. And so they're building their own wealth, despite the fact that government's inefficiency is something that is harmful and negative to us as individual citizens. But like you say, if they can ally themselves with the state and be a part of the state, then they can take advantage of all the positive aspects and, of course, avoid most of the negative. And so what you're talking about kind of reminds me of organizations like maybe the World Bank or the IMF. There are these 
they're these international groups that are largely made up of ex-executives from large corporations. And so you have this blend of these corporate executives and people that were ex-government as well, and they are coming to form these bodies that have a lot of say over matters that... Uh, really over nation states as a whole. The World Bank and the IMF can do a lot of things and leverage their power to force different countries to act in a certain way or bribe them where you won't get this loan unless you do this other thing. And so maybe that's something, it sounds familiar at least, that corporations might be more interested in using a vehicle like that that's a little more behind the scenes, that's not so open, that instead it's a more of a private oligarchy. I would argue that today we have more of an oligarchy than anything else, and it is private. And so you have one option that you make that public, and you have large corporations basically running things and governments playing this small role. But the other option, like you suggest, would be that they keep it behind the scenes, but they do have a lot more influence through controlling maybe some of these international organizations. Uh, What would you think about something like that? Well, I think what you said right off the right at the start there is that if these corporations are getting rich off of their relationships with government, why would they want to eliminate it? Also, these oligarchical organizations that you're talking about, really what power how much power are they going to have absent a state? Um I mean, you look at weak states around even the IMF I mean, how much power do they have in a country like the aforementioned Argentina? I mean, what what can they really? What is what are they benefiting from it? Um, seems to me that they benefit most from the United States, from England, pl- countries like that, countries in the West, where um, they can make those countries "quote unquote" rich by you know by funneling their uh, their currency in there. You know the the, the the famous apocryphal um, line that um, many attribute to Mayor Rothschild is um, I, I don't care who makes the laws as long as I and I'm paraphrasing as long as I control the currency. Yep. Yep. Um, but yeah, but you need a government for that. So I don't even know if a very weak government would benefit the corporate would benefit the corporations because. The weak government has no power, doesn't ha- isn't able to. You know, I'm one of those people who believes that the reason monopolies exist is because government exists. With the absence of government and people having to uh, being able to compete um, on on a, I mean, not a level playing surface, but being able to compete, that we would see monopolies fall away. And I have many arguments for that, which we don't, which we really can't get into on this subject, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see why corporations would want to eliminate the state and become the state, especially when they um, when they benefit so much by the state existing. Yeah. So what about the counter argument to that would be that the companies like Facebook that are starting their own currency or places like WeWork that just got bought out and is starting its own school and education system You have examples like this that are kind of in their infancy right now, but ways that corporations are starting their own more private versions of what the state is offering. And so 
you would think that that's not something that they'll basically take over from the state, but rather maybe something that they'll use in conjunction with the power of the state? Yeah, I, I don't... If they're benefiting so much from the state existing, I don't see how they're... why they'd want it gone. I mean, I think private education, things like that, things we're talking about are just going to pop up. I mean, it, it's just a normal cycle um, in especially um, the direction we're going. I mean, so many people are becoming disillusioned with government schools, even private schools. I mean, I went to private school and it wasn't, it wasn't all that. Yeah. You know, um, I had easier access to drugs actually in private school <laughs> than did in public school because there was more kids whose parents had money. Um, but yeah, I just don't, in my opinion, when you when you look through history, I mean, and you, we brought up the Medici's and everything. I mean, they were they were just kingmakers, and they had all this power because um, to put people on thrones and to put popes in into into the Vatican and to control banks here and there. Um, but it it all rested on on the fact that there was power. That there, that there, there, there was a power center. You know that there was that there was a um, there was royalty in France and um, certain and the Vatican in Italy. Yeah, I mean, I just don't. Um, I'm not worried about this corporate, you know, corporations taking over and becoming um, despotic or something like that that's not someplace i'm at right now yeah. and i'm not the biggest fan of corporations because mostly because of what they do with the government and i think there's some good corporations out there but you know the you know if you want to you want to get me started on boeing's and northrop grumman's i mean those are some of the, the absolute worst and then you know the tech giants we've been talking about but you know and some of the ones that control the food too Yes, you know the, the Tyson's of the the Tyson's of the world and everything like that. But um, when you get the unholy mixture of Bear and Monsanto with Big Agro and Big Pharma, yeah, some pretty bad examples. But those things those things happen because of government. I mean, was it Monsanto has had how many people work in the White House? <laughs> it's just it's remarkable running the FDA. Yeah, running the FDA. <laughs> I mean, just so amazing. Well, so. With that, and with that in mind, I want your opinion on whether you think these modern anti-establishment movements that are going on that people like you and I might be uh, trying to push forward, do you think those will be a modern digital reformation where we do get power away from this corrupt nation state we live under today and start gaining more liberties ourselves and become a little more individualized versus this collectivism that is kind of the uh, line that the media is telling us is the best way to go for globalism and that type of stuff? So do you see that we might have some success here. Now that we have the internet, we have access to all this information. Um, do you think that's going to work? Or do you think it'll be more like in the 60s and 70s where you had these 
uh, rebellious movements that came forward, and there were some changes, but all in all, it didn't really stop the state at all. It just got stronger and more powerful than ever. And so what what do you think? Do you think these will gain steam, and do you think that the internet will be something that can enable us to actually do something with this and have some major shifts in government and society? Or do you think it's basically just going to get subverted by these corporations and propaganda from the state? At this point, with how wrapped up people's minds are in the establishment and, you know, how the press and the government has people just completely uh, focused on this left-right paradigm. Um, I mean, I, I wrote an article that actually, for a Libertarian Institute, that did really well. I mean, it had wide, um, it was distributed pretty widely, where I just said that there is just the the left right divide is just going to kill liberty. I mean, they're just you have two factions. You have a faction on the right, a faction on the left that wants to gain hold of the power of government to punish the other side. And individual, there's individual liberty is not going to come out of that. There, there's you can't see individual liberty. I'm also one of these people who's of the opinion that if Hillary Clinton would have got elected instead of Donald Trump, you would see a lot more people talking about liberty like I do right now. I think that Donald Trump, for lack of a better term, hoodwinked a bunch of people into thinking that he was going to take down the government and he was going to drain the swamp. And, you know, hey, maybe what you know, I, I, I honestly believe he's going to get reelected, um, you know, maybe in his second term when, you know, he doesn't have to worry about getting elected again. He'll be more adventurous in trying to um, do some of the, you know, tear apart some of the government at all. But I'm not, I also think that if he gets reelected, he might make a push at gun control because people forget that he's a New York City Democrat. And, you know, and he's one of those people, He he's an elite who's guns for me, not for you, because you know, he carries a gun. He actually has a license to carry a gun in New York City, one of the very few people. Um, I don't really see a mass movement of um, people coming to this, uh, coming to, you know, the paths of Liberty. Um, I've gotten to the point where I don't concentrate on national politics as a path to Liberty other than, you know, I'd like to see like the Libertarian party or even a, a Republican candidate run who was pro Liberty. And that would be for educational purposes only. I mean, there's no way they're going to get elected. No. Um, but, you know, like Ron Paul, brought so many people over in 2008 and 2012. Um, I believe the best bet right now and what I'm concentrating on is local decentralization, uh, small groups of people in pockets dedicated to, you know, for lack of a better term, um, secession um, from larger, more centralized groups. So I've got a good example for that then. It's, you're really hitting it on the head, this example that I have thought of previously, and that would be the left-right divide that you're talking about in comparison to the Catholics and the Lutherans. It's either you are a reformer or you're a Catholic. <laughs> you're a Lutheran or a Catholic. You might be able to add in Calvinists there, but the Anabaptists were pretty much just shoved out. No one liked the Anabaptist. And and, and that's that's pretty much what I was when I was when I went to church. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, they were much more focused on local community and separating themselves out from often the state and also institutional religion. 
and you saw them with these movements that a lot of us could probably get behind, but in reality, what ended up happening is they're just this tiny little subgroup that continue on throughout history and didn't really have a big impact. And instead, you had the left-right divide, the Lutherans and the Catholics, or later became the Protestants and the Catholics basically dominated everything. And you had the rise of the nation state and all this stuff still went on despite these movements towards anti-establishment sentiment and uh, these types of movements that went on with the Reformation. So I would guess that from what it sounds like with what you're saying, you probably see a similar thing happening today where it's not that these anti-establishment movements and liberty-minded people are really going to change things and make these huge differences, but rather a lot of the movement is probably going to get subverted and taken over, and we might have some shifts, but it's not going to be towards liberty. No, I think it it has to be secession movements and um, decentralization movements. Um you know, having your town, convincing people in your town to nullify a federal, state, or even a county law, something like that. Um, it's happening all over the place now. I mean, just one that comes to mind immediately was that Denver decriminalized mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, you know, that was huge. And I know someone like Michael Heiss, who is the, um, the founder of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, like he's working in his town. He went to his sheriff, I think it's in Norristown, Pennsylvania. And he said, how about we decriminalize weed in the town? And the sheriff's like, yeah, it's probably time to draw something up. Let's take a look at it. You know, Atlanta did it a few years ago. I live right outside of Atlanta. And now Atlanta, if you get caught with like less than uh, an ounce of weed it's something like $50 or a $75 ticket and people you know and anarchists such as myself oh, well that's still and I'm like look it's better than jail yeah I mean you know, it's like I mean come on come on do you want jail or do you want 75 I don't want either but if you have to pick and you have to pick right now the state's not going away tomorrow you know <laughs> pick you know and I, I like the the 50 or 75 I can even go into court and fight that Oh, you know, so so I don't see any other way. I think that, you know, we've talked, we've used the phrase remnant a few times. Um, I don't see any other way. I just think that the masses, you know, Jesus said, you'll always have the poor. We'll always have, we'll always have the brainwashed and the brainwashed are just going to be, ma it's going to be the overwhelming mass of people. And the only way to break that, to break that cycle in my mind and I didn't believe this a year and a half ago when I wrote my first book and I put down the Catalonian um, separatist movement, which I wouldn't now if I rewrote that section. Yeah. Um, but I think it's the only it's the only solution. I mean, you're not going to. These people are insane. All you need to do is look at a Trump rally. And you, you think you're going to talk to you're going to talk to these people about free markets? <laughs> You know, you, really, I mean, look at look at the left. And do you think you're going to talk to these people about the non-aggression principle? I mean, they, they don't want anything to do with that. They want to use the power of the state to pound you and pulverize you and turn you into powder. If you don't believe like they do, you know, just look at the left. If you don't believe like they do, you're the enemy. They want to see uh, many of them want to see you dead. If you believe if you're preaching liberty. Because they think if you're preaching liberty and the kind of liberty that I talk about, well, that just opens the door for white supremacists and Nazis to be able to do whatever they want. Yeah. Well, it, it allows – no, it, it allows those people to exist and have a voice. 
but it doesn't take away from the fact that you can shoot them in the face if they aggress. You know, I'm not a pacifist. I just don't believe that anyone has the right to initiate violence against, uh, to initiate force against other people, which is why with that belief, it, to me, it makes the police and the government illegitimate. Yeah. Because if I don't have the, if I don't have the right to extract 30% of your income, I can't tell them, I, I, I can't get together a million people to agree and say, we should take away 30% of your income. So what, so what is the government? It's just the, it's, it's the best warlord group of warlords in, in the in the area. Yeah. Who are ruling, who are ruling over you. They don't have a mandate to do any of the things that they do. They just, they have a good 15,000 hour, um, indoctrination, uh, program that they, they start on you at an early age and keep it going until you're 18. At least. Yeah, at least, yeah. And if you if you decide to go further, and it's another reason why they want to make college free, <laughs> yeah. so they can just keep it going. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I I don't. My hopes for a large awakening are not there. Uh, my hopes are to you know people. I know a lot of anarchists like to make fun of the Free State Project up in New Hampshire and everything. Well, it's a bunch of people getting together. Um, who pretty much agree on the same thing in one area and trying to influence the culture. Yeah. I mean, three, the term three percenter when you, you know, how, how many of the colonists actually wanted to um, secede from, from the, uh, from the crown and three percenter um, describes the amount of people who were willing to fight, but it wasn't a lot. It they they didn't have vast support. They had they had more support for that than they did for the Constitution. Yeah. <laughs> people people forget about the Constitution that the Constitution's illegal. <laughs> that, that that was a coup, and the way you know it was a coup is they had to go home to their home states and have con- conventions to convince people that this was better than the Articles of Confederation, which is what they went to F- Philadelphia to just amend. Yep. and add things to, and then they threw it away, and it was in secret, and it was behind closed doors. And the Constitution gave us what we have now, or or has been powerless to prevent it, to quote Lysander Spooner. Yes. Yeah, so I would totally agree with you on pretty much all of that. And I would say that we do need to have this remnant that is actually doing something. And you're using a lot of logic and reason, which unfortunately does not sit well with many people. (laughs) It it doesn't sit well with the hardcore left. It doesn't sit well with the hardcore right. It doesn't even really sit well with the centrists. So pretty much they're all statists, and it's going to be very hard to use logic and reason to convince somebody of something. But that's what we're going to try, and we'll try to at least get a remnant of people and If people want to have a more centralized, organized governance system, then I'm all about letting them have that, but do it in a way that is not completely corrupt, started through conspiracies like we have today. Instead, do it the way that you want it on a voluntary basis, and I'm cool with that. Then have people that don't want any leaders, the true anarchists, the no ruler, and you could have that. You could have an ANCAP society that's right next door, and through competition, they would probably keep each other in check really well, and I can definitely get behind that idea, and I think that that could appeal to just about anybody if they actually take the time to educate themselves and look into it further. 
But uh, yeah, again, I'm not sure if people will break away from their fondle slabs, as some people call them, and focus on education instead of entertainment. But with that, I do want to go back to you and your podcast. You also talk about a lot of these things. And so what are some aspects and some related content and examples of things that you cover that are related to these types of things that we have been discussing today? Well, pretty much everything I put out is going to be um, going towards topics about liberty. My favorite two episodes um, are episode 227 and 228 of my podcast, where I had a chance to interview one of one of the nine Waco survivors, David Thibodeau. And we went as my only two part podcast because we spoke for you know over two hours. And, um, you know, that just the nature of the state, when you hear his story, um, the nature of the state becomes very, um, very, very clear to you. Uh, recently, I did an episode with um, Daniel McAdams. It's episode number 351. Uh, Daniel is the co host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report, which runs Monday through Friday. And um, he's the president of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. And we talked about um, color revolutions that have popped up over the last 30 years. And he goes, he was actually on the ground for a few of them in um, in Europe, in Eastern Europe when they were going on. I think he was on the ground for Albania. And I can't remember where else it was right off the top of my head. But we talked about revolution and the fact that the re the real revolution will not be televised. Uh, normally, when you see on TV them reporting on a revolution like Hong Kong, um, yeah, we already know that CIA and the NED are behind Hong Kong, no matter how many people are out there um, protesting. And all it's going to take is them to pull back their um, their training and whatever they're doing with those pe with those students and everything to watch them get slaughtered. Um, but you know, that was, a, that was a good teaching on just how the government behind the scenes uses these certain groups and some of them are NGOs, non-governmental associations, but they're organizations, but they're all being funded by, by tax money, by public money, yeah, everything. So that, um, I do a lot of episodes on the police, uh, but one of my my all-time favorites is episode 347, which I put out in early December. And it was, um, I had Thaddeus Russell, uh, Renegade University founder, the author of Renegade History of the United States, which is inspired by Howard Zinn, but very different, a very different book looking at how low culture people inspired the culture and have driven the culture ever since the earliest days of, of this country. But I had Thaddeus on to talk about the sadistic nature of America's empire and the sadistic nature of the American mind and where it comes from. Huh. You know, where ideas like when you find out that somebody's going to jail even for a violent crime, people will start making jokes about how they're going to be raped. Yeah. Or, you know, when... They, when they, you know, when they find out that, you know, oh, they dropped a bomb on a wedding in, in Iraq, but there was no, um, no one was there. 
um, who the person they they were trying to kill wasn't there, but they ended up killing 125 people. The whole idea of well, they're probably all terrorists anyway, so good riddance. Yeah, where does this where does this evil where, where does this kind of thought come from? And could it be that the American Empire and the American government is what um, influences it? Yeah. So yeah, that's episode three forty seven is truly one of my favorite episodes that I've done recently. Um, I also wrote a book back when I first started this. I was using a gnome de plume, uh, Mance Raider, the great um, character from Game of Thrones, and I wrote a book called Freedom Through Memedom, and it's up on Amazon, and it did really it did really well on Amazon. Um, it got really high up into uh, the libertarian section on Amazon. And it's like a 31 day guide to, you know, just a couple minutes a day. Even some of the, some of them are either even under a minute where I just go over and try to deprogram people from, uh, from their slumber, from believing that any of this, any of the authority that these people in Washington DC are wielding is real, you know, and just try to <laughs> try to break down, all of these falsehoods that are given to us. And uh, that book's done really well. And people, I have a feeling that uh, no matter how many books I write, people are always going to go back to that one and go, that was actually a very um, novel or original idea with what I came up with for that. So um, yeah, yeah, that that book's on Amazon. Okay. Well, I will definitely be recommending throughout this season that people come check your show out. I am bringing on multiple guests that host multiple other podcasts that relate to a lot of the content that I'll be covering in season two. And so hopefully if someone is interested in some of these aspects of how propaganda influences society and how corporations and the government work together and are intertwined and some of the corruptions in the state with their very structure to the actual actions that are being taken Hopefully people will check out your podcast to dig deeper into those things, and hopefully you can influence and educate some of my listeners as well. So I'll definitely point people in your direction, and I want to say thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your insight and giving us this content and this food for thought, and I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, Joshua. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. So that concludes the interview that I did with Pete. I hope that you enjoyed it and got a lot out of that. And there were a lot of things in there that he talked about that if you have listened to season one, which hopefully all of you have, you are well aware of some of those references and allusions he was making to things like agorism and the Federal Reserve and the Constitution and many of those things that season one has full episodes on. So if you have not gone through season one, go back and listen to any of those types of things that you may have heard that do not sound very familiar to you. If you're not very aware of maybe libertarian philosophy related to the structure of the state and maybe the immorality of the state, there's episodes on that as well. And so you can go back and check those out. Another thing I wanted to add here post-interview is a little bit more about the book that Pete brought up, Propaganda by Edward Bernays. That's one that I agree has a lot that we can learn from it and get out of it and is very relevant to today's society. I wanted to bring out another quote as well from this book that is a little more broad in scope, and I think it 
it applies very well to what we're dealing with in modern society and also gives listeners a good taste for what the book has more from a macro perspective. So the quote goes like this, quote, The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. End quote. So that's another one that I felt was a good representation. And then I also had two quotes that I'll just run together because they're from the same thing. A related text that I thought of was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And I'm not going to read from Brave New World, but he also gave a speech in 1962, and the speech was titled The Ultimate Revolution. And this was one that I pulled some quotes from that are also very fitting that I thought would go well with what we're talking about here today. Quote, It seems to me that the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, that we are in the process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably will always exist, to get people to love their servitude. This is the, it seems to me, the ultimate in malevolent revolutions, shall we say. And this is a problem which has interested me many years and about which I wrote 30 years ago a fable, Brave New World, which is an account of society making use of all the devices available and some of the devices which I imagined would be possible making use of them in order to, first of all, to standardize the population, to iron out inconvenient human differences, to create, to say, mass-produced models of human beings arranged in some sort of scientific caste system. Since then, I have continued to be extremely interested in this problem, and I have noticed with increasing dismay a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago have come true or seem to be in process of coming true. There will be, in the next generation or so, a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude, and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies, so that people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it, because they will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing, or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods, and this seems to be the final revolution. Again, that was Aldous Huxley in a speech he gave back in 1962, that seems rather timely in today's world. So that definitely reminds me of the term free-range surf 
and it seems like he is seeing that, that we are becoming or have become free-range serfs, that we love our servitude, and that that is unfortunately the position that we might see ourselves largely in in today's society. And on that depressing note, I guess I will go ahead and conclude this episode. That's all we have for today. Please come back next time for another interview on these types of topics, but from a different perspective and highlighting different aspects and different topics related to the Reformation and some of these parallels and the types of things that I will be covering later on throughout season two. So if you would like, check out the show notes. There is a link to my website where you can stream the podcast or look at some extra things I've posted on there, like resources and things like that, where you can get some ideas for other podcasts or books or anything else that I have found useful in my research and that I would recommend to you as well. There are also links there to the Patreon page if you want to become a supporter. There are a few perks there, one in particular being that you get to pick a topic or something that you want me to cover, a question, whatever it is that you have, and I'll cover that in an episode at some point. There is also the Twitter handle that I use for this podcast, and that would be Foundations PC. There is the email address, and that is ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Please feel free to send me any feedback that you have, any comments or questions or things you would like more coverage on in the future. Please send those my way via the email address. And I think that's everything. So with that, I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.